Welcome to a special episode of Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Smith. Four years on from the 2016 Defence White Paper, the Department has delivered a 2020 Defence Strategic Update. In today's episode, Brendan Nicholson talks to Aspie's Executive Director, Peter Jennings, about the outcomes of the update. Peter, it's now four years since the 2016 Defence White Paper, and a lot's changed in that time. How does this update define the strategic risk Australia faces? Like, how vulnerable are we? Well, as you say, Brendan, there's been a lot of change in in the time since the the last white paper and this defence strategic update really attempts to come to terms with the the pace uh, of change and the fact that a great deal of the change has been negative. Um, The the update itself starts with the proposition that um, our region is in the midst of the most consequential strategic realignment since the Second World War. Uh, which is a very significant statement if if you reflect on it. And um, although the the document uses, as you would expect for a public government document, uh, very very um, diplomatic language, uh, if you, you don't you don't have to read too carefully between the lines to see that a, a great deal of the source of Australian concern is about China. Uh, so the document refers to what it calls grey zone activities. Um, that that is to say offensive behaviour that's just a little short of open military conflict. Uh, It talks about grey zone activities being integrated into the statecraft of a number of countries uh, which are doing things like um, seeking to coerce countries, using paramilitary forces, militarising disputed features, uh, exploiting influence, engaging in interference operations and the coercive use of trade and economic levers. There may be some countries that, other than China that are doing those things around the world. You, you might be able to pin some of those activities on the Russians, for example. But in this part of the, the world, in the Indo-Pacific, China is really the source of most of those areas of grey zone concern. So um, I think this is a very consequential um, strategic update, Brendan, and, and I think from it we will see um, re- reasonably quickly, some quite substantial changes to how the defence force is organised and where uh, the spending priorities will lie. So, in terms of calculating the level of strategic risk that Australia faces, and in, uh, in identifying new technology and weapons to deal with that risk, you believe it's gone far enough? I think this is the start of what is going to continue to be changes across the um, order of battle of of the ADF. Um, The the document does note that there probably will be a need for further trade-offs in terms of the future investment program, Uh, and it does foreshadow the need for some quite significant spending in areas that are really designed to give the Defence Force uh, more bang for the buck, uh, to put it that way, in fairly short order. So long-range strike weapons, for example, is quite predominantly featured in the strategic update. So this is the start, um, and I think we'll see further and quite quick changes if the government actually does stick to the the, the letter of its intent in in this document. Can you tell us any more about the long-range strike capability? What, What sort of range will this give us, and will this be aircraft or ships or missiles? 
the the report talks about a range of things. Uh, missiles, in particular, are featured, um, and they are actually talking about um, anti-surface and anti-shipping missiles that can be potentially fitted onto existing Australian aircraft and ships that would give a range of several hundred kilometres to uh, to those weapons. Um, in addition to that, the document talks about um, hypersonic weapons, uh, which uh, are currently being researched at, uh, in conjunction with Defence at the University of Queensland to sort of further develop our interest in those things. Interestingly, Brendan, it talks about uh, the acquisition of sea mines, which is something that hasn't been part of the Australian order of battle for, for, for a good while. Um, and that's all about trying to control um, access to contested sea space, perhaps around the Australian uh, continent or, or indeed up into, uh, into maritime Southeast Asia. I even see a reference, Brendan, to direct energy weapons, uh, which is a novel thing that we know the Americans have been working on for some time, uh, used perhaps on ships uh, to defeat incoming missiles. So there's an array of new technology being put forward. Not a lot at this stage in terms of details about what government's going to do, but uh, a, a very clear intent to go down uh, the direction of some new and exotic technologies. It would seem ra rather quickly. Right. Are we looking at any unmanned platforms? Yes, there's um, uh, a statement there that they will continue uh, with the unmanned system uh, that is currently being called Loyal Wingman, developed by Boeing in conjunction with the Australian Air Force uh, as a sort of a, an unmanned supplementary aircraft to uh, manned or piloted um, uh, aircraft. Uh, there's also references to autonomous uh, systems for underwater uh, use uh, that might be floated off um, both the current Collins submarine and, and the future submarine, um, and even the uh, possibility of autonomous systems to support Army. Uh, I note if you dig towards the back of the um, force structure paper, uh, it talks about the uh, possibility of um, acquisition of up to a brigade size strength of uncrewed systems for Army. Uh, and so I'm, I'm imagining that they're, they're talking about systems that would be used for supplying uh, the forward end of a battle area, um, not using uh, not using humans. So um, you know, quite an interesting array of, uh, of new ideas uh, on display here. And it's interesting, Brendan, that um, e even in terms of army, uh, this document now contains uh, references to the development of up to a brigade's worth of autonomous systems for resupplying army formations uh, towards the front end of a combat zone. Uh, so, you know, what we are seeing effectively is um, the widespread adoption of autonomous crewed or uncrewed systems across the, the whole of the ADF. Are such capabilities, as we're looking at here, offensive or defensive? Or are we in the situation where the best defence might be an ability to retaliate in a very significant way? Yes, I think offence or defence is, is really more a product of the intent of, of the force that's using the weapons rather than something that's inherent in the, in the capability of, of a particular platform. So it all comes down to how is it going to be used. Uh, very clearly what we have here is an emphasis on the ability to defend Australia, but 
in the context of um, a, a large region, Southeast Asia, the Eastern Indian Ocean, um, and the South Pacific. Uh, so I think that uh, the, the intent here is to imagine uh, in a combat situation an Australian Defence Force that could be quite widely and broadly deployed with a range of weapons that give the Defence Force great range, great physical ability to hit a target at, at significant distance. Um, and the, you know, the intent here is to essentially make the costs of wanting to attack Australia too high, uh, that any enemy that was potentially contemplating using military force against Australia would look at the systems that the ADF could deploy and conclude that we were a target that was simply too too costly to try to attack. So, in a nutshell, let's say that this is fundamentally for defensive purposes. But as you say, in the conduct of military operations, um, you, you, you could actually find yourself uh, in quite offensive situations uh, using these weapons, uh, all in the interests of defending Australia and our interests in a wide expanse of territory. And if Australia does become embroiled in a future conflict, are we preparing to fight alone or can we still assume we will fight alongside our allies? Can we still re rely on the United States? That's interesting. This uh, strategic update um, has kind of a kind of a bet each way uh, on, on that very question. It, it does talk about the importance, uh, in fact, the continuing essential role of the uh, alliance relationship with the United States. But it also makes the point that um, even inside the alliance, you, you could imagine circumstances where we might be compelled to fight alone. Um, and that could well be because our strategic interests are differ, differ from the United States. So, uh, you know, I recall back in the East Timor crisis, the US was minded not to become militarily involved on the ground uh, in East Timor. So the, what this document says is that we need to give ourselves more confidence about a short supply of ammunition. Uh, it talks about expanding ammunition stocks. It talks about expanding Australian Defence Force holdings of fuel. And it even talks about the ability to uh, produce in Australia more complex munitions than the ammunitions that we currently make. So I think um, the intent here is really to strengthen our, our capacity for independent military operations and to sustain those operations over, over a lengthy period of time without drawing on, on the US alliance. Is, is there a plan built into the strategy to allow us to build regional alliances? There seems to be quite a strong focus on uh, Japan, uh, Indonesia and India, I think, is, is probably the top three countries for that the document zeroes in on for increasing uh, defence cooperation. Um, it's it's a little different to past white papers. Uh, it's it's not like every country gets a prize. Um, uh, there won't be much point. Uh, embassies and high commissions in in Canberra sort of kept counting the number of references to 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 their countries because that's that's not its purpose. But it it is certainly giving the impression that um, what what we need to do is to build stronger security connections with a number of the uh, sort of regional great powers principally the democracies. Um, and then, of course, it also touches on, you know, longer-term, more, more traditional relationships with the UK, with the European countries, uh, as well as, of course, the, the, the United States. 
Right. At the, at the moment, we have a significant number of major surface warships being built for the Navy. Are they what's required, and will there still be a role for them? Well, the, 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 the document does not make any changes to the, the, the big uh, force structure decisions that were taken in the 2016 white papers. So the future submarine uh, remains there. Uh, so does the, uh, the future frigate, the C-5000 project, uh, and, and, the aircraft, and the, most of the, uh, the, the major aircraft uh, projects as well. Uh, there is reference to the construction of a couple of larger vessels, uh, sort of 2,000 tonne vessels for the army, which which I think is very interesting after decades of emphasising the much, much larger landing helicopter dock platforms. We now seem to be wanting smaller amphibious-type vessels as well. Um, and more broadly, the, the uh, uh, strategic up- update and the force structure update also talks about the need for anticipating spiral development. So as we have platforms that will remain in service for 50 years or more, uh, we need to be thinking about how, how are we going to keep those upgraded uh, and you know operating in, in the battlefield environment of the 2030s and 2040s. Um, so uh, r- right now, though, I think that the sort of headline takeaway from this document is the emphasis on building up combat power and deterrent power in the relatively short term. Uh, and that is what makes this document distinctively different from the 2016 Defence White Paper, which was all about the shape of the Defence Force in, in about 2040. Right. Now, is all this going to cost a fortune? Will, will defence funding rise to over 2% of GDP, as has been promised, or will defence have to find the money for its increased capabilities from within the existing budget? It, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, question. It is definitely going to cost a fortune, uh, uh, Brendan, but it doesn't appear at this stage that the government is promising significantly over and above what it was anticipating in 2016. For example, they now say we're going to ditch the benchmark figure of 2% of gross national product uh, being spent on defence because that doesn't really measure anything that's useful. Interestingly, as a result of the recession or, or depression, whatever you want to call it, there is no doubt that defence is going to exceed the 2% of gross domestic product as the economy shrinks uh, over, over the next little while. So I can understand why the government is perhaps doing away with that measure. Uh, what, what they have done on, on, on the funding front is to carry the 10-year forward program ahead half a decade. So the 2016 Defence White Paper gave us a picture of defence expenditure 10 years out to 2026. This document now gives us an understanding of the size of defence spending out to 2930, so another 10 years. And in that decade from now to the end of 2930, uh, no less than $575 billion is going to be spent on defence. So you can average that out as where, where the average of that will be, $57 billion annually. We, we, we are climbing to that level now. And of that $575 billion, about $270 billion is going to be spent on, on new equipment. So um, I, I can say this, this was always in, in, the, um, in the forward-looking plan of the 2016 white paper, but we now have direct visibility of five years more of defence expenditure, um, and it is continuing to put us on a growth path. Um, whether or not government will need to spend more, 
than that 2% figure or more than the 570 billion? Well, that remains to be seen. Um, I, I would argue, Brendan, that the direction of our strategic situation is such that we probably will be forced to spend more. Uh, but at the very least, the government can say that it is maintained and indeed in some respects bettered its commitments as, as was presented in the 2016 White Paper. Right. Now, we'd always assumed that we'd have years to prepare for a major conflict. Has that view changed? Yes, it has. The The uh, strategic update is very decisive in saying that the, the old idea of Australia would have 10 years warning time to know that a country was harbouring intent to attack it and then 10 years to plan to respond to that intent, that that is now gone. Uh, and that to all intents and purposes, we are well inside that 10-year warning time envelope. Then the document goes on to talk about grey zone warfare. Uh, and effectively, it would argue that we, we're in that grey zone fight right now, be that on cybersecurity, uh, be it on influencing and shaping of an inappropriate type inside Australian politics, or um, through the South Pacific and Southeast Asia. So warning time is gone. Uh, and effectively what the document says is that we need to have a defence force that's better prepared to handle situations that could arise almost at zero notice. We have ways of looking out into the region, such as the, the Jindalee radar system. Is anything being done to increase that sort of our level of awareness of what's going on in our northern approaches? A number of things, Brendan, which are all very interesting. One is the promise to say that we will now develop a, a, an Indigenous Australian satellite capability, which will be to assist in situational awareness. Uh, that, that is to say, our intelligence picture of what is going on in the region. If you have your own satellites, you are not going to have to engage in queuing for satellite time uh, with our American allies. So there's there's going to be an investment into our own Australian satellite constellation. Something that I think is very interesting in the document is that it says that a new um, or an augmented um, over-the-horizon radar site is going to be built uh, at Long Ridge in Queensland. Uh, currently, that site essentially looks north. Now it's going to be extended to give the over-the-horizon radar system the capacity to look out east into the Pacific Ocean. Now, that is really significant. Why is that happening? Um, well, the document doesn't say it in these words, but it's clearly happening because we're seeing a much greater Chinese presence through the Pacific region uh, and a much greater Chinese interest in being able to establish a military presence uh, in the in possibly in Melanesia or, or, or in Polynesia. Uh, and we've seen Chinese forays into the Solomon Islands and into uh, Vanuatu, indicating an interest in a military presence there. So um, that is actually a really telling statement in the document that we're now going to have over the horizon radar looking east. And you know, nothing could more clearly say to you that, in fact, we, we are in a changing and difficult strategic situation when, when that is the case. Now, is terrorism still regarded as as a serious threat? It is, but it's certainly getting less airspace than it did in, in uh, past uh, strategic documents. I, I think the language would be that uh, terrorism is maintains um, uh, is maintained as a source of government concern, uh, but it, it is definitely not getting uh, the, the volume of ink that uh, it has in previous documents. Something that's new that... Um, 
I'm sure Australians will understand why it's there, is that there's quite a few references now to saying that the Defence Force needs to be better organised to support civilian authorities in Australia uh, when it comes to dealing with disasters and uh, natural catastrophes. Uh, and of course, I think that comes from the dreadful bushfire experience uh, at the beginning of this year, which we've all kind of forgotten as a result of COVID, but where we saw the Defence Force being used um, all, all down the east coast of Australia. Now this document says, in addition to everything else that we're doing, the grey zone preparation, the increasing of strike power for high-end military conflict, we, we need to have a force that's able to do more with civil authorities for dealing with domestic disasters, at, at, potentially at the same time. And a double banger one, um, has the pandemic changed our strategic situation? Is there a concern about that? And it has certainly highlighted the vulnerability of supply chains. Is there a lesson there in a conflict? Would we still have to rely on supplies coming from the other side of the world? Or we might, might we be able to manufacture much more of our munitions in Australia? Well, I think the pandemic has tri driven um, a series of strategic trends that we knew about and were concerned about. Uh, it, the pandemic has driven those concerns even even faster. And partly that this is because out of the pandemic emerged a, a different China, a China that was much more e e engaged in wolf warrior diplomacy, um, that looked and still looks as though what it wants to do is to emerge out of the crisis, you know, the, the most strongly positioned country in the region. So I think what COVID did uh, was to take the strategic concerns of the uh, of the 2016 Defence White Paper and turbocharge them. And, and really to say that what the White Paper thought might be the situation we'd have to deal with in 2030 uh, is actually to say, well, in fact, it's the situation we're dealing with in 2020. Um, in other words, the future's arrived faster than we expected it to. And um, you're quite right. Uh, uh, there is, uh, uh, throughout this document, a concern about the, the impact on supply chains. Uh, I, I think that's been driven partly by um, long-standing concerns uh, expressed in a range of places, including from ASPE about fuel security. Um, uh, and then also the experience with the pandemic of uh, running out of uh, critical supplies of personal protective uh, equipment uh, uh, for the healthcare uh, sector. What this uh, strategic update does is that it's asked the same questions about munition supplies. Um, and it's really said we cannot allow ourselves to be relying on a situation where we, we will be dependent on foreign supply of munitions, potentially at exactly the same time when our supplier would be having a high demand for those for those weapons as well. So we get promises of more um, munition stockpiling, uh, more fuel stockpiling, and we also get hints that we might actually have to look at our own complex munition production in Australia. Now, what that means is they're talking about missiles uh, rather than uh, you know weapon uh, bullets for uh, light arms or, or for uh, artillery and you know it's been a long time since australia was in the missile business but i, th I think government now has a serious interest to to, to look at, at that area to see what can be done peter jennings thanks very much my pleasure brendan nice to talk to you thank you for joining us for this special episode of the podcast as always if you have any thoughts on what we've discussed here today you can always reach us on twitter at aspie underscore org we will be back with a regular episode this Friday.